0: Thank you for that. Pastor Yuri asked me to come and pray for him and for us uh, as we open up God's word and hear the message that he has placed into Yuri's mind and heart for us. I'd like to pray twice. Uh, and the first is for the situation in Ukraine. I, I realized at some point this week And then again this morning that that's been going on now for two weeks basically and we haven't prayed for them in any sort of congregational way. I'm not going to take a whole lot of time but I do want us to pray for the people of Ukraine and then uh, I'd like to uh, pray for Yuri in his delivery and us in our receiving. Uh, As Eunice uh, led up to her prayer and made reference to the darkness in the world these days. It just, um, I I guess the popular word these days is triggered in me, Um, John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, speaking of Jesus, who was from the beginning and is now and forever will be the word Made flesh. In verse 4, we read, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We talked about this a couple of Wednesdays ago. The brighter the light gets, and the darker the darkness gets the brighter the light is multiplied. It gets brighter and brighter and brighter, the darker and darker that it gets. And that is both true materially or physically and also spiritually. And so I'd like for us to pray that the light of Jesus Christ will shine in that darkness. And even though the darkness does not comprehend it, which one of the versions says, it certainly will not overcome it. Let's pray together. that there are many times in our lives whether personally or nationally or in this case globally there seems not to be a solution there seems to be only evil all the time the darkness seems to have overcome everything and surely there are brothers and sisters in Ukraine who feel that way now We want to pray for them, Lord, but not just on our good wishes, but on your word that in Christ is the light of men, of human beings, that apart from him, there is no light and that the darkness has not and will not overcome the light of Christ. So we pray, Lord, for the people of Ukraine. We've seen the pictures, the the video, we've heard the pleas in our 24 hour, seven day a week news cycle. We've seen live images of destruction being wrought, but we've also seen, Lord, people ministering, whether they call it that or not, to those who are fleeing what has become the battlefield, which only just so short time ago was their home. We pray for those who would help them on the other side of the border, whether in Poland or Hungary or Moldova or Romania or wherever it might be that they're fleeing to. We pray also, Lord, that somehow, some way, your glory will be known in this event. Don't let evil even appear to win out, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, then, as I was standing over there a bit ago, thinking about praying for Yuri and for the ministry of the Word, um, Ephesians chapter 3 came to mind. I'm not going to preach, but Ephesians chapter 3 came to mind, and it it tells what is going on and what ought to be going on when we are preaching, when we are delivering a message from God's Word, when we are in the midst of the ministry of the Word. And uh, when this hit me a number of years ago when we were in Iowa, I've never not been aware of this when I've been in the pulpit that this is what I'm doing or this is what we are doing uh, here on a Sunday morning and on other occasions when we proclaim the Word of God. I'd just like to start at verse 1 of chapter 3 and move through verse 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, through the gospel, verse seven. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's, that's task number one as we proclaim and preach the gospel to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and, verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so, or and, so number 3, verse 10, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known To the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is, God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might, might not now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. That's our specific part as we preach, as we listen, as we proclaim, as we pray. Let's pray together. Lord, now, as Yuri comes, we pray that you would do this work through him even to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. They would preach to the Gentiles, and each one of us, so far as I know, are are, are Gentiles. And we're so thankful for this revelation that the Gentiles are part of the household of faith as you call us to faith in Jesus Christ, both Messiah and Christ. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that you give us And every Sunday, virtually, to hear your gospel proclaimed and hear your word preached and to respond in faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Thank you, Mark. Well, do we believe that the Spirit is at work among us? I do. And both in Eunice's words and in Mark's words just now, you'll hear a great deal of resonance with the message that I've prepared, which I feel the Spirit has put on my heart. So much so that my initial temptation is to say, no, don't say that, (laughs) because I'm gonna be going there in a few minutes as well. But the Spirit knows what he's doing, and he knows what we need to hear once, twice, three times. We're slow learners. And so I trust that the Spirit is at work this morning. As you came in and you picked up a bulletin, you may have seen in your bulletin a sheet of uh, music. Uh, for some of you, this may be helpful. For those of you, it, some of you, it may not be helpful, and that's fine. But we're going to sing today's sermon scripture together, We sang it a number of weeks ago, and I kind of a call and response to help you to learn the melody, and we're going to start by singing the first stanza that way again. So you have a chance to hear it, I'll sing it phrase by phrase, and you can sing back to me. We'll be singing the first, second, third, and then the sixth stanzas of Psalm 139 in this metrical version. It goes like this. You searched me, Lord, you searched me, Lord, and you perceive, and you perceive. You know when I, you know when I sit down or leave, sit down or leave. And from afar, and from afar, you recognize, you recognize thoughts and desires, thoughts and desires that in me rise, that in me rise. My lying down, my lying down Each way I go, each way I go All that I do, all that I do You search and know, you search and know Before I even, before I even Speak a word, speak a word All I would say, all I would say You know, O Lord, you know, O Lord Now starting in stanza two, let's sing all together. You hem me in here where I stand, and on me you have laid your hand. Such wondrous knowledge is too vast, it is too high beyond my grasp. Where can I from your spirit flee, or from your presence hidden be? You are in heaven if there I'd fled, and in the grave were that my bed. Now, stanza three. If I the wings of morning take And farthest sea my dwelling make Your hand will guide me even there Your right hand hold me Could darkness blot me out of sight? Could light around me turn to night? No, darkness is not dark to you. The night shines brightly in your view. Now sixth stanza. Oh, that you'd slay the wicked god! Depart from me, you men of blood! Your foes, O oh God, with words profane rebel and take your name. In do I not hate your haters, Lord? Those fighting you I have abhorred. I hate them almost most fervently. I count them as my enemies. The third third line, stanza seven. Search me, O God, my heart discern. Test me, my troubling thoughts to learn. See if my heart toward harm might stray. Oh, lead me in the lasting way. Thank you for singing. That's how churches, for hundreds of years, worshipped together. They sang the Psalms without any accompaniment, any adornment, simply. you may be surprised to hear that there are parts of the Bible that I have trouble reading. But I suspect you do too, and we just sang some of those words, I think. I especially hesitate to read them aloud, and it's not because I think there's anything wrong with them. Far from it. It's more that They are so volatile, so highly charged, so primal. They're filled with such heavy emotions that they can crack open and crush complex realities almost too easily. Using plain speech to utter them feels glib and careless, clumsy, maybe even a little foolish. And what we're studying this week and next are two such passages. They are psalms, and for good reason. They're not written to be articulated plainly or casually. Like all psalms, they were meant to be sung or at least prayed. They're not to be toyed with, not to be speculated on as a historical or theological curiosity. They're also not to be ignored, much less embarrassed by a dirty secret to be closeted away. But they are startling, as you may have found as you sang those words, not to mention confusing, and so they're helped by careful explanation. So we will be looking this week at What is, if we're truthful, our least favorite part of one of our most favorite psalms? And next week, we'll be considering a psalm that went from being one of the most celebrated in the early church to one of the most neglected in the modern church. Why are they important for us to consider right now? Well, we've already hinted at it a few times in this service. We're living in a time When many of us are overwhelmed by the world's sin, we're bombarded with urgent moral questions, questions that also reveal our temptations. Do we fight? Do we cut ourselves off? Do we just give in? The answer the Bible gives is a strong no to those questions. And yet, how can we not burn at the injustices we see in the world? We want to fight. How many of us just focus only on taking care of our own households? We just want to be left alone. And how often do we feel justified in calling our temptations simply natural cravings? We want to join in. We've all absorbed the modern bias. Everything is relative, and we shouldn't judge, must less, much less condemn. But that kind of thinking has just opened the door to increasing selfishness, dishonesty, and exploitation, and along with that, not too surprisingly, a broad mistrust. The world is also facing environmental catastrophe, And scarred and fractured by two years of pandemic isolation, we're now living with the shock of seeing the kind of war that we had considered unthinkable in our time. Until a week and a half ago, it was. And honestly, although these two sermons that I that I'm preparing, dealing with sin's extent and remedy, have been germinating for a while, I had thought to wait a while longer before preaching them, since Pastor Mark had already preached on the theology of sin and the historical reality of the fall in this series. But then, Russia invaded Ukraine, and the depth of humanity's sin became immediately real, undeniable, urgent. As Mark said, it's flooding the 24 hours news cycle. It's even splashed across Facebook and even TikTok. I felt I needed to talk about sin more, and I think we all need to think about it some more as well. In terms of this series, the question I want to ask is, what should be the biblical Christian's relationship to the sin we find in the world? But in the presence of obvious evil, of bombs falling, of people dying, that kind of language feels a little too abstract for me. I need to make it more simple, more personal. Evil makes me sad. Evil makes me angry. Evil fills me with despair. Now, what do I do with that? I'll just read once again the text that we'll be looking at this morning. Psalm 139, "If you have the Pew Bible in front of you, I believe it's on page 500 or 609 and 10, starting in verse 19. "Oh that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Everlasting. David's language shocks us, doesn't it? It worries us. It seems far too direct. Slay the wicked. Depart from me. I hate them. They're my enemies. It seems naive, almost childish in its simplicity. It's almost like we wonder how David's parents could have failed him so badly that he never learned not to say such nasty things. But the idea that David was a tantrum-throwing man-child doesn't really square with what we know about him, either from other parts of the Bible or from the rest of this psalm, which we sang a little bit of. So what's going on? First of all, whatever this passage is, it's not a venting of blind rage It's not a tantrum. The first clue to this is that it is verbal. Unlike his paranoid predecessor, King Saul, David didn't go around screaming and launching spears at people he thought might be out to get him. That said, David was obviously upset when he composed his song, but he put his raw emotions into words, not actions. He was not controlled by his emotions. And the words he used were not the first angry curses that happened to come to mind. He chose his words carefully and arranged them poetically. And he likely worked out a melody and played his harp at the same time, creating yet another layer of psychological distance that set his will firmly above his feelings. And finally, the song he wrote was not intended just for himself but written to be shared and ultimately sung by all of God's people together. But hold on, someone might say, what about these words? Do you actually think it's acceptable to sing about, maybe even celebrate, hatred? That's a reasonable question. And to answer it, we need to take a close and careful look at some of those words themselves in their context. First and foremost, this is a prayer. In other words, David is communicating with God. We see this right away. The very first word of the whole psalm, David addresses Yahweh, the Lord. And throughout, there is a similar focus, an unwavering direction, Godward, David really only calls on the Lord to do things at the very end in the passage that we're studying today. For most of this psalm, he simply marvels, adoring God for how well God knows him, better than he knows himself. So even in the brief moment in our passage in verse 19, when he seems to be addressing a group of other people, the men of blood, or as the NIV puts it if you're reading the Pew Bible, bloodthirsty men, They may or they may not be present, but he is not really talking to them, but about them to God. Expressing his unfulfilled desire that they would depart. In other words, that he would not need to have anything to do with them. As we'll see, it's a wish that wasn't fulfilled in his lifetime. So not only does David put space between his feelings and his actions... He places the upsetting things he's going through into a theological context. Let's say that more simply. When David's life was turned upside down, he turned to God. But who were these men of blood, the wicked that David asks God to slay? And this is an important question because it leads to the deepest question we probably have about this passage. Can there be any justification... For asking God to kill another human being. This request strikes us as vile. And we're not wrong to be taken aback by it. But we know David himself enforced a strict code of honor. More importantly, he feared God. And he had enough humility before God not to pretend that just because he was relatively powerful, he could do no wrong. And I want to look at another passage of Scripture to illustrate this, so turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 16. That's found on page 509 in your pew Bibles. Oh, I'm sorry, I think it's 309. 309. Is that right? In the pew Bibles? Second Samuel 16, I may have written it down wrong. Is it 309? 309. We'll be starting to read in uh, verse 5. So this is a complicated episode from the darkest days of David's rule. His son Absalom had laid claim to the throne. And things were not looking good for David. The previous chapter tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of the people, and even some of the most trusted and able men in David's court had gone over to him. Absalom had gained the upper hand, in other words. David was a seasoned leader, and he could see what was happening. So he fled Jerusalem with what was left of his court and his army. Let's take up the story in verse 5. Ha, I turn to 1 Samuel. <laughs> there we go. Verse 5 of chapter 16. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people, And all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, My own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him And cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. As David left the city, he was confronted with an old question an old question that had dogged him since the beginning of his rule Was he actually the rightful king? Or was he himself the treacherous usurper of Israel's throne? The Bible makes no bones about the fact that David's whole life and career was characterized by violence. As a young shepherd, he killed the lions and bears that endangered his flock. He then established his fame by slaying Goliath and fighting the Philistines. Surprisingly, while in exile, he worked alongside the Philistines. And although he didn't fight with them against his countrymen, after Saul's death, he engaged in a bitter civil war to establish himself as king over all the tribes of Israel, not just of Judah. At the moment of David's deepest need and self-doubt, an old partisan of King Saul's court crawls out of the woodwork and calls down curses against him that are almost identical to the term David uses in our psalm. Two times Shimei calls David a man of blood. At first, this seems to us like this is just a term that you could apply to anyone who has resorted to violence for any reason. Now, I mentioned that the NIV translates this same concept as bloodthirsty men in the psalm. But I don't think that's the best choice. Because on closer examination, it becomes clear that man of blood is not just a generic negative characterization, it's not an all-purpose term of abuse for someone who, as we might say, lives by the sword. Now, after studying the uses of this term closely and the idea of blood guilt more generally in the Old Testament, it seems more likely that man of blood isn't applied to just anyone who has taken another human life. It definitely wouldn't apply to a soldier in a time of war, for instance. It has more to do with actions that dissolve the bonds of community. Corruption that seriously undercuts our ability to trust one another. First-degree murder would obviously be included with that, but it's not limited to that. A man of blood is someone who refuses his obligations and takes advantage of his position. A man of blood thumbs his nose at authority, deceives his friends, preys on those who trust him. He exposes those he has a duty to protect, to harm. He fails those he has pledged to serve as he pursues his own selfish ends. Man of blood expresses the revulsion we feel for those who think the law does not apply to them. A man of blood may or may not have literally shed blood, but one thing is sure, his blood is on his own head. That is, he has so transgressed God's law, so transgressed the social contract, that he deserves death. If you want to look into it further, Leviticus 20 is a good place to start, just saying To one who was still fiercely loyal to old King Saul and his family, David's troubles with Absalom provided the proof and the opportunity to publicly accuse him. David is a man of blood! Shimei seems to cry again and again. David took over the throne by intrigue and violence. David is an illegitimate ruler. David is nothing more than an opportunistic warlord. David maliciously propped up Israel's enemies. David killed the king and the rightful heir by proxy. David broke his covenant with Saul. David has been judged by God, and Absalom's revolt is proof. David, the usurping man of God, is cursed. David has the rightful king's blood on his head. David has broken God's covenant. David is a blasphemer and worthy of a blasphemer's death. David should be stoned. As unhinged as Shimei seems to us, as misinformed as he was about the facts, he was actually acting out of a reasonable suspicion and his behavior throwing dust into the air and pelting david and his soldiers with rocks are in fact appropriate for his time and place in history as a fervent follower of yahweh and a loyal partisan of the previous king david vehemently refuses abishai's offer to relieve shimei of his head and this seems to further vindicate shimei's claim This is odd since Shimei could actually not be more wrong about the particulars of the case. The fact that David pardons Shimei in chapter 19 when Shimei realizes his mistake and begs for his life makes it even more unusual, especially since by that time David's power and position had been restored. And that same baffled, mighty man, Abishai, once again pressed the king for Shimei's execution, and David once again angrily refuses. This was not only mercy on David's part. It was self-awareness and guilt. The fact is, David recognized that Shimei's accusation, as flawed as it was in its details, stuck. He was making the right claim, but for the wrong crime. David was indeed a man of blood but not because he had transgressed his covenant with his king. He had transgressed his covenant with his God and his covenant with Israel after he had already become king. He had forsaken his obligation to protect his people. He had exploited his position to prey on the vulnerable Bathsheba. He had indeed murdered by proxy. Only Saul wasn't his victim, it was Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And We don't know how many people were aware of it at that point in David's life. Shimei certainly doesn't seem to have known, otherwise it would have given him even more ammunition. But one who definitely did know about it was David's general, Joab, Abishai's brother. Joab was the man who had facilitated and covered up the murder. Joab was the very definition of a man of blood. Powerful and well connected, he was a man who was used to getting his way. Joab quietly and efficiently dealt with any threats to his position, to David's extreme horror. In fact, David tried to bring in capable new generals, likely both to build bridges with his former enemies as well as to serve as a foil to Joab's terrifying jealousy. But Joab dispatched them quickly, coldly revenging himself on Saul's general Abner and savagely stabbing his own cousin with a kiss. And when a dagger wasn't the right tool for the job, he also knew very well how to manipulate the people around him including his king. The point is that David himself was a man of blood who was surrounded by men of blood who happened to be better at playing the game than he was. He seemed to have looked on impotently as his own sinful predation of Bathsheba and her husband were echoed in the actions of his children. David's firstborn son, Amnon, raped Absalom's beautiful sister, Tamar. Then Absalom, frustrated by his father's inertia, his unwillingness to address the incestuous injustice done by the crown prince, bided his time until he created an opportunity to murder his half-brother in cold blood. Look at verse 11 again of our passage in 2 Samuel 16. David says, Let him curse, for the Lord has told him so. David did indeed consider Absalom's revolt to be God's judgment on him. David wrote in that psalm that we heard at the beginning of our service, My sins have overtaken me. He was paralyzed by the knowledge that he himself was one of the men of blood from whom he longed to be delivered. And it was Joab, ever the knowing man of the world, ever the pragmatic man of action, who finally dealt with Absalom with his usual calculating ruthlessness. Now let's turn back to Psalm 139. This is page 609 or 610. Very few of us sin as seriously as David did. And thank God... Very few of us have the kind of dangerous friends that he had. But we have all experienced in varying degrees the brokenness that flows from our own sin. From the sins of those around us. From the sins of those who came before us. In pain and despairing that he will ever escape the lying and the violence all around him. That he himself has participated in. David cries out to God, Oh, men of blood, depart from me. It's natural and right to want to put distance between ourselves and evil. We too find layer upon layer of intrigue and dishonesty all around us. The modern world has forced it under the surface, but this has not only hidden the problem, It's magnified it. A hundred years ago, reflecting on the First World War, a young liberal pastor by the name of Reinhold Niebuhr wrote in his journal, modern civilization substitutes unconscious sins of more destructive consequences for conscious sins of less destructive consequences. Men try consciously to eliminate atrocities But meanwhile, they unheedingly build a civilization which is more destructive of moral and personal values than anything intended in a more primitive society. To put that in contemporary corporate techno-speak, you might say that in the modern world, we outsource our sin to right-size our sense of guilt. And that's been especially and increasingly true since the Second World War. What we're seeing all around us now, the trashed environment, aggression and war, the impotence of leaders, the wasting of meaningful lives by distractions, the fracturing of social bonds. This is the fruit of our modern, sin-free, guilt-free society we are all caught in the web of the men of blood. More than that, we participate in it. We and our children may well pay the price of our inheritance, the choices that our grandparents and our great-grandparents made, which we have only doubled down on, to deny, to minimize, to justify sin. Some will hear this and scoff. But I'm not trying to convince you of my reading of modern history. I'm just stating the obvious. Evil makes us sad. Evil makes us angry. Evil makes us despair. And I want to answer the question, what do we do with that? When we read David's harsh-sounding words, we automatically hear them as petty, utterly lacking in compassion. But this says more about us than it does about him. We think that he has in mind those who we think of as the other, the desperate, the poor, the unhygienic, the social outcasts. And it's certainly possible that the Pharisees of our world may look to a passage like this to justify their prejudice. But the poor souls at the fringes of David's world were not likely to be the ones who could upset him so much that he would cry out to God in desperation any more than the poor souls at the fringes of our society managed to disturb us. And as we've seen, his sights were set much closer to home. The rich, the powerful, the pious, his relatives, his friends, himself. Anger brought David to his knees. But guilt convicted him, and forgiveness brought a song to his lips. His conscience was seared in the awesome awareness of God's searching i that's what distinguishes david from his bloody minded friends and family but what further sets him apart is that he desperately calls on god to continue the examination search me o god know my heart try me and know my thoughts see if there be any grievous way in me. These are the only imperatives in the whole psalm, anguished, pleas for God to finally purge him of his sin and lead him in the way everlasting. When David prays, when we pray, if we pray, that God would slay the wicked, when we banish the men of blood from our bubble, when we hate those who hate God, when we loathe those who rise up against him, we are not, or we ought not, to direct our gaze at another. It is me. My own sinful self against whom I am laying charges and pronouncing judgment. Biblical Christians are those who, like David, are brutally vulnerable before God. They see the extent of their own sin. They see how tangled up they are in the sins of others. They don't deny it. They don't minimize it. They don't seek to justify themselves. Those who trust in Jesus rightly pray that he would slay the wicked, not because they take pleasure in seeing corpses, and certainly not because they have a death wish themselves, but to acknowledge that wickedness, even their own wickedness, deserves death. They pray this in hope, knowing that their wickedness was carried by their Savior to his own death on the cross. Biblical Christians single out God's enemies not to revile and abuse them, but to help themselves to look in the mirror, to identify their own hypocrisy when they say one thing and do another, appropriating the Lord's name while acting in a way that dishonors him. They hate God's haters, not because it is right to do so, although if God is perfect goodness and love, there is a sense in which it is, but to invoke the fiercest response they can muster to their own rebel lusts. And as they do so, they find that it is unthinkable to cast the first stone at another person. Recognizing themselves in the face of God's enemies, they embrace them. And they encourage even the most hostile among them to come along with them, that together we may sin no more. This is the gradual, humbling transformation that only God's Spirit can bring. Only God can bring it because it requires supernatural enabling. To be like Jesus, to draw near to evil even as you are repelled by it. We are saddened by sin. We are angered by sin, and yet we're not to despair at it because the Lord has overcome it, as Pastor Mark mentioned. And so to answer our question, what do we do when confronted by evil? Sometimes we feel like fighting. Sometimes we feel like running away. Sometimes we feel like joining in. Those seem like our only practical options. But David's psalm teaches us that there is a better way. And there are two very practical responses that are not combative. Yet they lead us to victory They aren't cowardly or selfish either, yet they both insulate us from the worst danger and cause us to grow. And they're so obvious. I'm embarrassed that I didn't see them at first until I had wrestled with this message for a long while, and I worried that I'd never finish it. these two things that we do are prayer and worship. Prayer and worship. Sin could have embittered David. He could have just lashed out, not in words, but in violence. Instead, sin drove him to his knees. Other people's sin drove him to his knees. And there God both convicted him of his own sin and revealed the awesome mercy that drew praise from his lips. Prayer and praise delivered his anger to the proper address. What are we to do with the sadness and the anger and the despair we feel in the face of evil? We pray. We bring that to God. And we worship him. There will be many who scoff at that answer as a cop-out. Because our first inclination is to do something. Just pray. I must admit that the very reason I couldn't finish this sermon at first was because over the past couple of months, I've become more and more preoccupied and despairing about the evil in the world. Maybe some of you are like me, too. You hear something disturbing. And of course, you throw up a little prayer for the suffering people. But more important, you tell yourself, is to do something. I just wish I could do more than just pray about it you say to yourself or I say to myself. So you set out to try to inform yourself. Maybe you make a token gesture or donation. You find yourself spending an increasing amount of time following the news. You find yourself watching more and more videos drawn in by clever commentators who generally manage to confirm your worst fears. You get more sad then progressively angrier as you spend more and more time obsessing over what's happening, whether it's a world away or relatively close to home. You scoff at friends and family and complete strangers on Facebook. Maybe, maybe you manage to restrain yourself from getting into an actual argument, but you start to get a thrill from watching people struggle against one another from the sidelines. Your trust in people and in institutions erodes. Maybe even you, get, maybe you even get TikTok or Twitter because you're not sure that you trust what's being shown to you on the news. And soon enough, the time you might once have devoted to prayer is swallowed up by reflexive scrolling. Wide-eyed, perhaps, but with a heart soured and dulled, until the next big thing that grabs your attention. Our intentions may be good, but if we're honest, most of the time we have no ability to personally affect any of the evil we encounter. In despair, in prayerless pride, inactive, inert, we just end up being drawn into its orbit. But maybe you're the kind of person who sees through the futility and all that. You're, you're the kind of person who doesn't allow yourself to get drawn in by the news or the chattering of those around you. Maybe you're the kind of person who, when you hear mention of an event or an activity or an attitude that sounds upsetting or overwhelming, you determine to keep your eyes fixed on just what you have to do in your own life. You may not exactly avoid hearing more about it, but you don't actively try to find out anything either. Nothing in your life has changed. So where's the harm in that approach? The problem is that the evil, the suffering, the sin, whether or not you give your attention to it, is still out there, still causing damage. And God, in his sovereign purpose, has placed you in a position to be able to hear about it. And you've reflectively plugged your ears. In one step, you've dulled your heart. Do we not believe that God brings things to our attention for a purpose? The fact that the eternal consequences of our sins is dealt with at the cross does not let us off the hook entirely. That is, we're not only to avoid the most obvious sins— we're not only to do our best not to, as Niebuhr put it, unheedingly build a civilization that destroys moral and personal values, that we are called to push against unconscious sins, but we are more than that, to be the redeemed people of God, the bride of Christ. And how best do we do that? By allowing ourselves to get upset, allowing ourselves to get knocked off our feet, allowing ourselves to be driven to our knees, and finally to be opened up in praise. Our response to sin, then, ultimately, is not to remain private. This is obvious again, so obvious it's easy to miss, but this psalm, this one of the most deeply personal of David's prayers, is something that we are all to participate in together. The simple fact that it's included in the Psalter implies this, but in case we missed it, the title itself tells us that it was deliberately composed for the director of music. It is supposed to be heard, prayed, sung alongside our brothers and sisters, the people of God in community, sinful, rebellious, broken men and women of blood, deserving death, offering this prayer together in hope. And I'll say this directly to you who are watching via the live stream, and I hope you'll hear it in the gentle spirit in which it's intended. If you're still staying home right now because you figure you can just as well pray and worship in comfort as you can in the physical company of the saints, you're in greater danger of the blindness, the bitterness, and the apathy that I just referred to a few moments ago. In greater danger of the spiritual impotence that will keep you from being able to do anything for God and which ultimately afflicted David so tragically. We need you here at 1350 Grant Avenue. But I'm guessing that given the evil in the world, you need to be here even more. On Sunday mornings, on Wednesday nights, for public prayer, public worship, We may all do good things to help those who are suffering from the evil in the world, and we all should do good things to help those who are suffering from the evil in the world. But in prayer and in worship, our hearts become vulnerable. Prayer and worship are the best, the most practical, the first response we should have to evil. Prayer and worship are accessible, to you, wherever you are. Prayer and worship reveal what you ought to do next. So they are not the least you can do, but the absolute best thing you can do. And it's together, as the gathered, called-out assembly, the ecclesia, the church, that we have the greatest impact against the evil that is in the world. And it's not merely a case of the whole being greater than the sum of its parts. Rubbing shoulders with other sinners, exposing ourselves to irritating annoyances of being with other people, as well as the comforting kindnesses that come along with it. We not only file down and dissolve the calluses on our hearts, we begin to perceive the evil in the world rightly. We see it no longer in frustration and fear, no longer in despair, but we see it with the eyes of love, in sober readiness. We see through the eyes of our Lord, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We see through the eyes of our Lord, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us. We see through the eyes of our Lord, of whom David said, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We see through the eyes of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom David had seen receiving authority from on high to be the remedy for evil and the savior of the world. But there. I've said more than enough for one day. So I'll leave you hanging for Psalm 110 next week. We'll pick up right here where we left off. Let's pray. Lord, there is much matter to consider in what I just said. I pray that it would take hold and that you would give us a mind to be able to recall what we've heard and come back next week and learn more about how you are the king of all creation, the redeemer of the world.
0: Amen.